I'm sure like all of you, my heart was heavy this last week. I, I'm sure your heart has been heavy this last week, of just watching what's been going on in the nation's capital. And it was such a huge reminder for me, church. Um, I, I just felt God really pressing upon my heart uh, a reality of how desperately we need Jesus, right? It, it's, just, it's the reality of the world that we live in. And, and the brokenness really came forward this last week. We think every time we've seen bad things, it seems like in the news there's one more bad thing that happens. I, I was at home um, in a discussion with some friends who um, were uh, meeting with us, and Lori and I were just talking with them. And while I was talking, um, my phone kept lighting up. And I didn't know why, and, and um, found out later, it was Wednesday afternoon, and people were messaging me, saying, hey, did you see the news? Do you see what's going on? And I couldn't figure out why. I called my daughter, Ashley, after we got done meeting with them, and said, what's going on? And she said, Dad, you've got to look at the news. So I did, and saw what all of you saw. And immediately, God just, like, hit me over the head. Mark, this world needs Jesus. That's why you're here. It's, that's why you're here, New Hope, because God needs us in this place. He uses us as a force for His kingdom. You're going to be especially reminded in this parable this morning of the role that Jesus has for you, the responsibility, the thing that He's given to us to do. So I want to pray with you, not only that God would speak powerfully to us through this parable this morning, but He would remind us once again why we're here. There's a reason you're drawing breath this morning. If God didn't need you here, he would remove you. But he needs you here. You're a force for the kingdom. So let's go to prayer with that in mind, that the unique circumstances of this last week should remind us again, we are a broken people globally. We all have dirt on our hands. Only Jesus can set things right. This world needs Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you with hearts that are tenderized by the powerful words that we declared through worship, and that those words lifted you up, and we were able to sing them, and we sing them in truth in the same way that we look at your word in truth this morning. The words that you caused to be written down on these pages in black and white are there to remind us, to instruct us, to equip us of the call that you have on us. So, Father, right now we take a minute and we pray for our nation. We pray for your healing hand to be upon this country. God, I don't care about the political spectrum. I, don't, I know that you don't care about the political spectrum. What you care about is if we put Jesus in the right place, first and foremost. And so we pray for that. So we lift up the leaders of our nation. God, we have a new president and a new vice president and a new cabinet members and a new senators coming in and houses of Congress, God, I pray that they would make decisions that would be pleasing to you. So we lift them up to you, asking God that you would give them your wisdom. And were there individuals who don't have a relationship with you, Father, I pray that you would start there, that you would cause first and foremost that Jesus would be at the center of their life. And as a result of that, God, that they would make decisions that are pleasing to you. We keep our priorities in line, Father, and our priorities are that we put you first and foremost. So we pray, we plead 
Not only that you would remove the virus that is plaguing this world, but that you would indeed bring peace to this nation. And only you can do that, and it only requires us putting you at the center, which is such a huge hurdle for so many people. God, I know that you're going to remind us of that now as we work through this parable. So I ask that you would prepare our hearts now. We turn our hearts to your word. We're praying that the Holy Spirit would speak powerfully in this moment and that your word would go forth in power. We pray for that in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. You come into Matthew 21 and you find it's the final week of the life of Jesus. This parable begins on Wednesday. He will be crucified on Friday. He tells this parable knowing that reality. On Monday, just several days earlier, he arrived to the shouts of people lifting up, Hosanna, the one who comes in the name of the king, the son of David. It was what we call Palm Sunday, which was probably Palm Monday, but that's another issue. He heard that, and they declare Psalm 118 so everyone can know what they recognize as a people. On Tuesday, he clears the temple. It's only a day later he's back in the temple, and in Matthew 21, he's teaching the people. The Pharisees are there, the scribes are there, the Sadducees, the elders, the chief priests, the Herodians. These are the leaders of the nation. And the leaders of the nation are there, and they hear God speaking, although they don't recognize it as God. And they're infuriated, mostly because he's, if you will, removed the mask from them. He's called them out. He's revealed the hypocrisy, showing what's really going on in their lives. But they hate him because he's teaching things that are completely contrary to the things that he's been teaching. So in their rage, they have a meeting. And in their meeting, they're planning, how do we get rid of him? So when you look at verse 23 of Matthew 21, you find that they demand to know by what authority are you doing the things that you're doing? Who gave you the right to chase the money changers out of the temple? In other words, they want to see his ordination papers. Show us your credentials. If we put it in modern vernacular, we'd say they want to see his college diploma on the wall. What, what gave you the authority to do the things that you do? So Jesus responds to their hostility with a parable. We saw that parable a few weeks ago before Christmas. It was the parable of the two sons. The one son who said he would go into the field and work and never did, and the other one who said he wouldn't go but then did go. And Jesus used that to illustrate to them where their hearts are at, how they were pretending and how they were being posers. And he called them out on that particular issue saying, Tax collectors and prostitutes are going to get into the kingdom of God before you do. You remember that? Look with me on the screen at this verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and he's speaking of John the Baptist. And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds. It was a blistering rebuke. They have questioned his authority and denied his authority and cast him aside and actually, it's because they've never faced up to the truth of John's message. Jesus said, John came in the way of righteousness, meaning his work stemmed from God. But you did not believe. And he said, the tax collectors believed and the prostitutes believed. Look with me on the screen at that. Matthew 21, 32. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed. 
Let that register with you for a minute. Prostitutes who made their living doing what they do decided to no longer make their living doing what they do, and they repented, and that's what the word repent means. You're going in one direction, you're carrying out actions, and you turn and go in the opposite direction. Tax collectors who were making their living stealing from people who are no longer stealing from people. Tax collectors no longer have a source of income. Prostitutes no longer have a source of income. They've repented and changed. And yet Jesus says, you didn't believe when you even saw that. They responded to the truth. What happened was their lives began producing the fruit of repentance. We're talking about genuine life transformation. And Jesus says, you didn't even believe when you saw that. That's how hard your hearts are. And that should be reminding you this morning, New Hope, how powerful your witness is. That your life is a living witness to the degree that you can actually impact people. Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, you should have believed just by looking at the life change of those people. Has there been life change in your life? Can people tell that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? That's the fruit of repentance. People can look at you and say, that person is different than what they used to be. They're not the same individual. So Jesus says, even when you saw it, and he levels this most serious accusation. Just look at those four words. Even, even when you laid eyes on it, even when you saw that, you did not change your mind. And that is an astoundingly hard-hearted person. There's an enormous danger when you're exposed to the light of the gospel message of Jesus. The enormous danger is you have to do something with it. In their case, the thing that they decided to do with it is to defiantly refuse Jesus. John was calling people to repent. John the Baptist is killed by this point. On this particular Wednesday, he's been dead for a while. They beheaded him. But he's reminding them of John's message, and John's message was repent. That's the precondition for becoming a believer in God, in Jesus. You've got to repent. There's got to be a want to to change the heart. But the problem for spiritual posers is this. Spiritual posers don't believe they have anything to repent of. And that's the crowd Jesus is dealing with. They think they're good. We're good with God. Thanks. We got this. We don't have anything to deal with. But God is not deceived by false promises. So Jesus brings great clarity to this issue with this next parable. And here's how it begins in verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Meaning he literally went abroad, traveled to a distant land, the way it's described in the Greek language. But Jesus starts out with verse 33 by saying, hear another parable. The word another in the Greek language is the word alos, A-L-L-O-S, and it means another of the same kind. So Jesus has just told one parable about the issue of judgment, and now he's telling another of the same kind, another about judgment. He's going to deal with them on this issue. In an agrarian society, and if you're not familiar with that word, it means agriculture. In an agrarian society, the mainstay of an agrarian society in the first century is winemaking. It's, it's so critical to their economy, it's as important to them as gas stations are to you and I. Our economy would cease to exist if we didn't have gas available for us to carry out the things that we do. 
their mainstay in their economy is wine. Their water wasn't fit to drink. It wasn't all that great. They needed wine to substitute in their diet. For us, it's a luxury. For them, it's a necessity. So Jesus begins speaking to these individuals who are listening to Him about something that's really well known in the first century, this process of making wine. The hillsides in Israel are covered with vineyards. Every place they looked, they could see them. To this day, there's lots of great vineyards there. Now, for this individual, it's, a, it's an investment property. This wealthy landowner has decided he's going to use some of his resources. He's got substantial resources, apparently, and he owns some investment land, and he wants to put in a vineyard. Now, this is a new vineyard, and so there's risk involved. And where there's risk, there's uncertainty as to how well it's going to perform. But this particular owner does everything that he knows to do in order to set it up well to succeed. He puts in all the systems to keep the rodents out and to keep the wild animals out and to keep his enemies out. And he puts in all the modern tools and all the right mechanisms to make it work. Ultimately, he installs a wine press. Now, this is the way that a wine press was built in the first century. The basins were literally chiseled out of stone. Somebody sat with a big mallet and with a stone chisel, and they began working on a piece of earth stone to shape a basin, which was very, very large. It was part of the earth. It was part of the soil. And they'd sit for days chipping away to create this deep vat. Then they would chisel a trough from that basin down to the next level. The first basin was higher up, and the next basin lower down, and they would do the same thing and create a vat in the ground, a basin out of stone. Once they had mashed the grapes, the skins would remain, but the juice, it would overflow through that chiseled trough down to the next vat. And there they would sift it, and that's where they gathered it and put it in wineskins and in jars and put it in a cool place so that it would begin to ferment. This is exactly the description that Jesus is putting forward. And he said this one went so far that he actually put in watchtowers. He built a tower. So if you think of a modern-day lighthouse, you'll be thinking of the type of building that they built. Uh, on the first floor was where the owner would live or the guard in this particular case. On the second floor is where they would watch the crops to see if there were enemies coming. They would watch the terrain. They could see if rodents were there or if animals were in the vineyard or birds were coming in. And this owner went to the length of he actually put a wall in. Some of these vineyards actually had moats with water surrounding it to keep people out of the vineyard. It was of that high a value to their economy. And additionally, those moats could have so much water in them that they would use them sometimes in battle locations, and they would build thorny hedges around the vineyard. Why all those details? Well, you find Jesus giving as much or more detail in this particular parable than He does in many of the other parables for this reason. All those details indicate the extreme care that this wealthy landowner put into developing this vineyard. It was very well planned. He invested a lot of his resources in it. In other words, the man did it right. He even put in a security system. He's got all the modern tools there, and the complex is finished, and then he rents it out. He goes to find some individuals whom he trusts to be stewards of his investment. He wants them to be reliable, and he makes an agreement with them. It's what we would think of today as modern-day sharecroppers someone who gets a plot of land and they can harvest a crop, they would sell a percentage back to the owner. 
The owner gets a take because of his investment. Well, this owner has gone away to a distant land, but he wants to collect what's due him. Verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. Verse 35, the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. And you're like, what? Where's that coming from? Now, as the story unfolds, Jesus is giving great detail, literally saying, the season of the fruits has arrived, and it's time for Him to collect what's due Him. This is the time when they calculate the product. So He sends His servants to collect the fruits. In other words, what's due Him? He wants His rent money. Now, in a new vineyard, you're not going to get much yield. My grandfather raised grape vineyard. My mother had a grape vineyard. I'm very familiar with what they're describing here. In the first year, not much grapes. Second year, third year, fourth year, you're not giving it much of a return. By the fifth year, that's when the profits kick in. And those profits could be very substantial with a well-developed vineyard. This is exactly the setting that Jesus is describing here. Now, mind you, vines take a long time to prune and, and to train and to get them to the point where they can actually produce. During those first years, it's very important that the landowner collect the rent from them even though they're not producing profit. So he might collect a small amount of rent from them, even a nominal amount. But it's very important that he do that because during this time, workers who are in a vineyard in the first century can actually take and seize title to a plot of land if they can show that for more than three years, they've had ownership of that vineyard and the landowner hasn't come. So he sends his vineyard workers so they would at least collect an annual amount of rent and it's, and it's establishing ownership by collecting this rent. But Jesus says instead of them paying their rent, these vine growers, they beat and they stone and they kill his servants. The word that Jesus uses here is lithobaleo. You can read about it in the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a written collection of ancient Jewish writings, but I'm not going to give you the graphic detail. It's really gory this morning, but the details of a stoning are just horrific. And many people think of individuals picking up a rock and throwing it like a baseball. That's part of it. But when they get a person on their knees and they knock them down, they begin picking up boulders. And without getting into all the details, the idea is to take the boulders and drop them on the individual until they crush the life out of them, specifically on the chest area, trying to remove any capacity to breathe and you just keep piling the boulders on top of them. So they beat some of the servants, they outright murder others, and then they crush the life out of the third one by dropping boulders on them. Just zoom back with me, 30,000 foot view for a minute. These individuals who've been given such privilege by the owner of the land have come to the place where they now are resentful to the very one who has blessed them. They're filled with hatred to the one who only had helped them, and all they were asked to do was to give back what was due. So Jesus keeps going, and here the story repeats itself in the next verse, verse 36. Again, He sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. 
So these vineyard workers, these tenants, had a magnificent opportunity. What a setup for them. They're working with a quality landowner, and he's invested in all the right implements. He's put the system together, and, and he's given them complete trust to operate their system based on the most modern standards. It's a well-equipped operation. But they're not content with just earning a good living. They want the whole operation. They want to seize the whole thing. I don't know about you, but if I was the one who was the landowner sending people that I trusted out to collect rent and they murdered them, I'd have a pretty strong reaction and I don't think I'd be sending a second group back to collect rent. I don't know about you, but that would be my reaction. I don't know that I'd be showing too much patience in this point. And look at verse 36, it says, he sent one group and then another, and he sent another, and they kill and they torture them no matter who he sends to them. And at this point you want to say, what an amazingly patient landowner. Maybe that thought didn't pop in your mind. Maybe you would even want to use the word merciful here. What an amazingly patient, wealthy landowner who's invested in everything, who's showing such mercy. Critics of the Bible and critics of this particular parable, they look at it and say, there's no way. <laughs> Nobody would do that. Who's going to send their workers back out to get killed one after another? They're going to go after them with all they've got. To which Jesus' point is exactly that issue. Well, you're right, a man wouldn't. Men wouldn't show that kind of grace. I would react very quickly. I bet you would react very quickly. The very point Jesus is pushing is, that's right, man would not keep being patient, even the most gracious of men. So what is this landowner to do? How should he respond? Should he send armies to destroy the wicked? Well, surprise of all surprises, he sends his own son. Go with me to the next part of the verse, verse 37. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Verse 38, but when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. The very action, just the action of the son's arrival causes them to say, let's kill him. It drives them to greed because greed is never satisfied. So they said, this is the heir. Let's kill him and take his vineyard. I want you to notice, I don't care how many times you've read this story before, maybe it's brand new to you, but maybe you've seen it a hundred times. Have you ever noticed before that the murder is premeditated? They determined even though they knew who it was. See, Jesus is telling this story two days before they will murder him. Just telling it off the top of his head. He's telling them another parable of the same kind. Two days before they're about to murder him. 
And he says it's for the very reason that he is the son that they plan his murder. So back to the story. So they take the son of the wealthy landowner and they throw him outside of the vineyard because it will contaminate the vineyard and selling their crops, their grapes with a dead body inside where they've spilled blood would be against Jewish law. They can't contaminate the place where they would grow their own harvest. And so they remove him, they take him outside the wall and they murder him thinking that the landowner will never come back and they can seize the vineyard. By the end of this shocking story, you know that Jesus' listeners are completely captivated. Anyone listening to this story would have pity for that landowner. Would say, what? Why would they treat him this way? Why would they respond? He's been betrayed by those he so generously trusted. And the grieving you might naturally have for the owner's loss would only be matched by the rage against those who behave so heartlessly and so brutally. But keep noticing what Jesus is pushing at here. It's the uncommonness of the patience of this landowner that is so extraordinary. It stands in stark contrast against those vineyard workers who have been so brutal to him. Now, watch Jesus where he goes, because the next thing he does, you don't expect it to happen. This is where he drops the hammer. Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those vine growers? This owner is not one to allow that final horror to go unpunished. He's been patient, he's been patient, he's been patient, he sends workers, he sends workers, he sends workers. But now, that final horror. Jesus, mind you, is speaking of a time when the owner personally comes and he will come again. That's what he's driving at here. So in typical rabbinical fashion, Jesus takes this story and leads his listeners right to the edge of the cliff and allows them to draw the conclusion, well, what should he do? What will this landowner do in this situation? Remember how it read, what will he do to those vine growers? Here it goes, verse 41. Then he said to them, then they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay them, who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. So Jesus has the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, the high priests, the Herodians, the entire ruling class of Israel, the nation is in front of him. They're in their own temple courtyard. And they immediately respond very, very quickly. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And they respond with indignation. And they sum up a pretty accurate ending. Any landowner would have the right to seek justice in this. And they recognize it. They would say, he's going to severely punish those wicked people. And he's going to replace them with people who are much more reliable. So in the first century setting where Jesus is at, the nation's leaders are all too quick to answer this story at the end of Jesus' parable. 
and they seemingly are completely unaware that they've just sprung the trap. Jesus has baited them right up to the edge, and they've sprung it on themselves, and they speak of their own future condemnation. And these rulers have just judged themselves the exact same way that King David judged himself when Nathan the prophet showed up and said, David, you are the man. If you know your Bible, you know exactly what I'm talking about, church. Let's, let's look at where Jesus goes next with this. Jesus has the most unusual quote for them from Psalm 118. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting word for word Psalm 118. Now, that may seem like it's completely disconnected from the parable you've just been looking at. You might be thinking, why did he go there? He's been talking about grapevines and juice. Why is he quoting that old psalm? I assure you, Jesus is really emphasizing his point here. In the first century, the cornerstone was indeed critical to the building. Today, we understand modern architecture. We use modern building techniques, but there's still a center point at which a building is built off from. In their day, it was the cornerstone, and the cornerstone determined the dependability of the rest of the building. If the cornerstone wasn't set first, the rest of the building would be out of whack. Everything was aligned based on the cornerstone, and so builders would commonly reject stones. They would examine them constantly because it was so crucial that they would get the right cornerstone, that that one would be the one on which the rest of the building would be completely based. You need to know that Israel looked upon Psalm 118 as a psalm of victory. The nation looked on what David had written in the book of Psalms, and they thought that was declaring something about them that they were a declaration of a nation who had been picked up by God. And they're not wrong. When they look back historically, they could easily see where God had acted on their behalf time and time again and picked them up off the scrap pile and put them back in His building plan. They're not wrong about that historical perspective. They could easily see what God had done for them. So historically, they're thinking it's talking about them as a nation, that Israel is the cornerstone. And this small nation, even to this day, is a force on the global stage. It continues to have huge impact upon our world. They're not wrong about that, but there's something more going on. There's double fulfillment in what Jesus just talked about in Psalm 118. It goes far beyond the nation of Israel. It talks about the one who comes out of the nation, this one individual. Now, just stay with me on this thought. The leaders of the nation have examined Jesus. They've looked at him as a builder looks at a cornerstone. And they've determined, you don't have the right ordination papers. You clearly don't represent God. Show us your diploma. By what right do you do the things that you do? And they've rejected him, and they've denied his authority, and they've cast him aside. So he's been examined, and he's been rejected. But do you notice in that psalm, who brings that cornerstone back? It is God who does it, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In other words, God brings back the stone that was rejected by the people. 
So it's so brilliant that Jesus would quote this exact psalm right here. Because just three days earlier, the people were quoting Psalm 118 also. Hoshana, Hoshana, Hoshana. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the son of David, which is Psalm 118 also. So brilliantly, Jesus brings to their mind the very thing that they just heard in their own ears three days earlier. So he says to them, did you guys miss that one? And if it sounds sarcastic, it is. If you've never seen Jesus be sarcastic before, he does that to them right there. Did you never read? Do you know who he's saying that to, church? He's saying that to the experts in the Bible. Did you never read that one about the cornerstone? Did you never catch that before? You're such experts in the law. But it wasn't missed by Jesus' followers. The import of that very quote was caught by Peter only a few weeks later when he stood on the grounds of the temple after Jesus had been murdered. And he made a declaration to the nation. Look with me on the screen at Acts 4.10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Amen? That's the fisherman saying that. That's the unschooled, untrained fisherman Peter who's standing on the court steps of the temple making a declaration to all the learned individuals of the nation. That great stone is Jesus. Those who are rejecting him are the nation's leaders. And in a greater sense, the entire unbelieving global population of the planet. So in effect, what Jesus has just said in this story is, you nation's leaders are the, the wretched vine growers, and by your own declaration, don't you realize that God is the wealthy landowner and the prophets whom you've killed over the years, they're the workers who came to collect the rent and I am the son? I am the heir? And you will murder me. So Jesus drops the judgment, verse 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And if they were unclear previously, he removes all ambigu ambiguity at this point. And New Hope, this is where he begins talking about you. Maybe you've wondered why all this detail up to this point. It's for getting to this part right here. You're the people he's talking about. It's very straightforward. Jesus reiterates this judgment on Israel and their replacement by believers, believing Gentiles in this case. And he says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the kingdom of God is taken away from you. And he speaks directly to the nation and pronounces this shocking and horrible truth. They're the unbelievers who have refused Jesus. 
And a common characteristic of an unbeliever is they don't contain repentance. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. If you have repented and believed in Jesus, it's because the Holy Spirit is active in your life. If you agree with that, say amen. That's the truth. You didn't come to that conclusion on your own. It's the Spirit of God that's been working on you. But a common characteristic of unbelievers is they don't repent. They don't see the need to repent. They don't want to repent. And therefore, they can't produce kingdom fruit. So Jesus is going to be taken away from you. But he clarifies, this doesn't mean that God won't accomplish his work of the kingdom. He still will accomplish his work. He's going to do it through another people. He has to carry it out. He would do through so through a group of people who will live as producers of fruit. And I think I'm convinced it's a foreshadow he's talking about weeks in advance of the church. Watch very closely. Look on the screen. The kingdom of God will be given to a people producing the fruit of it. What's, what's the fruit in your life today? Well, the fruit of righteousness for sure. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he has taken away that sin stain and replaced it with righteousness so that when God looks upon you, he sees righteousness. You may not always feel righteous, but when God sees you, he sees righteousness because of not what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. So you produce the fruit of righteousness just because of what Jesus has done in your life. You've produced the fruit of repentance by saying, I believe. I don't want to keep being in, caught up in sin. I want to produce that kind of fruit. Let me show you two examples from Scripture. Maybe you want to write these down in your notes this morning. Philippians 1.11. He's speaking here when he wrote to the church at Philippi. You are filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Or this one from Colossians 1.10. You knew hope. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. God's pleased when you study His Word. God is pleased with you. It, it produces fruit in your life. Now, know this, one day, one day future, Israel will return to God, and they will declare Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's a promise of Scripture. God has not forgotten them. He will not forever neglect them. Look at what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11, verse 2. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or keep going with verse 25. All Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. But that's future. For now, God has called another people to be His witness. Are you living in a broken planet? Are you living among people with dirt on their hands? Absolutely we are. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Are you living among a people who need Jesus desperately? God has called you. For now, He's called another people to be His witness. Long ago, through the prophet Hosea, hundreds of years before Jesus lived, God made a declaration. Paul quoted it in Romans 9. Just bear with me. This isn't going to come up on the screen. I'm just going to find it and read it to you. 
Romans 9.25, Paul's quoting an ancient prophet. I will call those people who were not my people, my people. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. You knew hope, whether you're in this auditorium live or you're virtually part of the service. You are the sons and the daughters of the living God. He has given you such huge privilege, yet such huge responsibility that we would be found as the faithful vineyard workers that we would be producing the fruit of the kingdom. For sure, righteousness in our life, we, we get that when Jesus comes into our life. And the fruit of repentance, for sure. But the fruit of the responsibility of sharing that good news with those whom you do life with, your coworkers, people in your community, perhaps in your own family, we are the people producing the fruit of the kingdom. We're called the church, actually called a royal priesthood. Look at the way that Peter described it, 1 Peter 2.9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We are that people. We need to be reminded of that. Be reminded of that this morning. You have a huge responsibility you're living in a world that's broken. People are wondering, what's next? I mean, if a virus didn't take us down and now we've got this going on in our nation's capital, what's next? Keep Jesus at the center. Be reminded, you are God's people in the midst of a dark and perverse world. That's what Scripture says. Those aren't my words. Those are God's words. Be reminded of who you are in the midst of it. You are the redeemed of the Lord. And we are the channel through which God brings the gospel to the world that desperately needs Jesus. So you've been reminded today that God is really long-suffering. I mean, like patient beyond anybody's understanding. Because you and I, we'd be going back with armies to conquer those who killed our people. But God, He is long-suffering. He is merciful. He is patient. Because He's not willing that any would perish but that all would come to repentance. But there is a day when the owner will come back again. Ultimately, though, he sent his son to rescue. And that reality screams to us of just how much God loves us. So hear these words from Jesus' own lips. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever, prostitutes and tax collectors, whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. John 3, 16. With that, New Hope, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reality of how awesome you can communicate information when you record what Jesus wrote down and, and caused to be written down for us through these parables. How badly, how desperately you wanted us to know these things. And you make it so 
plain, so obvious, Father. To you, to you be the glory and the honor and the praise. But in, in the midst of that reality, Father, that we recognize that you did this for our benefit to show us who we are before you, we also recognize we have this awesome task to be faithful workers in the vineyard. God, that you would send us out today with a boldness, with a, a holy boldness to speak to the people who are in our social circle. That they don't have to fear, they don't have to fret. They can put their hope in you. God, I, pr I pray for us that it begins with us. You've equipped us now through your word. Now send us out with your blessing, reminding us of who we are and the responsibility we have before you. You're worthy of it, Father. Jesus, you're worthy of it. It's in the name of Jesus, the majestic name of our King, who gave everything for us, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Have a powerful week, New Hope.